Welcome to We Gotta Talk, a live weekly talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. From health to relationships to alternative lifestyles and more, the one thing you will always get is a deep dive. I'm Sunny, a 15-year veteran of TV news, freelance writer, blogger, mom of three, and wife. But most of all, I'm just a die-hard oversharer, someone who's genuinely curious about, well, everything around me. And I can't wait for you to join in on these conversations that I promise will impact, inspire, and entertain you. Now, let's talk. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of We Gotta Talk. I am so glad and grateful that you are here. Today's episode is something that is reflective of not only an issue that we're always concerned about, but also an issue that is particularly important in the month of October, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Um, if you know me, I am very into preventive tactics, little hacks, tips, things you can do to keep your health at its prime to potentially prevent issues down the road. Today's guest is perfect for talking about keeping ourselves healthy in every stage of life because not only is she a proponent of this proactive health, which is a, a movement that we're gonna get into very shortly, but she was also in practice for 12 years as a breast cancer surgeon. And she has tremendous experience dealing with patients who are dealing with chronic disease, specifically cancer. Her name is Dr. Olga Ivanov, and I am so, so grateful that she's given us some time today. Dr. Ivanov, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sony, very much for having me. Okay, so I wanna start, um, we kind of realized that we happened to time this perfectly for October and Breast Cancer Awareness Month. What spurred me to do this topic initially was seeing, um, at least anecdotally, what seemed to be a higher instance of younger women being diagnosed specifically with breast cancer. And I wanna know from your years in practice and based on what you've observed since stepping away from practicing medicine, at least for the time being, if you think there's a reason for that. Well, I, um, um, what I really think is, uh, first of all, more and more women get diagnosed with breast cancer every year. So that's kind of an alarming statistics right there. For a while, we were on the decline in the mid-2000s, uh, early 2010s. And now for a reason that we, we can address, and we do know, more and more women are starting to get breast cancer. And so proportionately, of course, if you have more women getting breast cancer, some more young women would seem to have um, breast cancer as well. Um, and the major reason for increase in uh, breast cancer incidence over the past five to seven years, even 10, it really parallels the epidemic of obesity. And we do know now that very much um, extra weight leads to extra estrogen state in a female body, and that directly correlates with increases, increased chances of developing breast cancer. Are there also some lifestyle or environmental concerns here? Because I do feel that uh, the world we live in is more toxic than ever in a lot of ways. We are we are more aware of how to prevent ourselves from sort of being exposed to those additional chemicals and irritants. But it does seem like it's impossible to get away from anything that could potentially negatively affect our health. So I guess this question is kind of two pronged. Um, are there more environmental aggressors? And is there a way to what is the best way to minimize our exposure? Well, I think it goes back to the pillars. Let's try to control what we can and, um, you know, maybe avoid in a way what we can't. And obviously things like clean, uh, highly nutritious diet is something we more or less can control. The amount of sleep, if we work on it and have the good hygiene, uh, sleep hygiene, we can't control that. Obviously exercise is another important issue, not just in not gaining weight, but exercise turns on 20,000 genes that actively suppress breast uh, cancers, period. Breast cancer is one of them. So there are certain things like exercise of about at least 150 minutes a week, uh, diet low and processed foods, uh, sleep hygiene, and then mental health, meditation, calming down, uh, anxiety and whatnot. If we can control at least these pillars, uh, decrease alcohol intake, cessation of smoking, then we're pretty much way on our way of maybe even controlling the disease or at least 80% of it. 
I want to talk about two specific environmental issues that I hear come up time and time again, at least in sort of conversations about people's health, plastics and 5G. This may veer into conspiracy theory territory um, yeah. or not, depending on how much you believe. I, I personally have concerns about EMF exposure and all of these um, sort of incidental things that our body is exposed to. I want your uh, specific reaction to the, the potential for danger of those two things, plastics, 5G slash EMF. Sure. So plastics is known to be as an environmental toxin. And the way we think it can affect negatively us and uh, is that um, certain um, elements of plastics that get inside our bloodstream or inside of our bodies one way or another um, do become mild to moderate estrogen um, inducers. And again, when it comes to at least breast cancer, a high estrogen state is something that we want to avoid because it typically does precipitate or lead to increased incidence of breast cancer. So plastics that do add as mimetics of estrogen in the body can definitely um, get us in the, in the higher risk category. So avoidance at all means possible is obviously a good idea. 5G is kind of a relatively new thing, at least in the scientific community. Mm -hmm. So really comment much on that. Um, so I would probably pass on, on commenting on 5G. What about EMF in general? Um, just a little kind of peek into my, my mind here. I am perhaps overly concerned about this to the extent that like I have research, you know, we have EMF shields for our phones. This isn't one for our devices, but I feel that there is just, um, you know, little things that we can do, but I don't know if I'm focusing my energy in the wrong direction, being specifically concerned about EMF. And if you think it's an issue, I'm, I'm curious to see how you minimize your exposure. I mean, you know, the whole idea with it, of phones and whatnot, we do know that there is um, scientific evidence that these leads to overexposure to uh, of phones and especially close distance where you can start you know, feeling the heat of the device is linked to uh, at least brain cancer. So we do know that there is one of those facts. Um, so things like, you know, unfortunately these phones are inevitable now and they're ubiquitous and everywhere. So minimizing things, maybe putting headphones on, keeping it away um, as, as much as you can from yourself. There's definitely no need to sleep with it next to, with the device sleeping right next to you. Um, so if you can just put it in the next room, put on a pair of headphones, kind of these would seem to be very obvious advice, but even that probably would um, would do well, would, 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 would have right. a bang for the money. I want to dig into proactive health. When we spoke, now just a little bit of our background, I have been to IV Lounge before, which is a company now that you are part of. And um, we're going to talk all about the benefits of certain supplements and vitamin infusions, things that you believe can make a positive impact on preventing disease. Um, but I really want to talk about proactive health because when we spoke by phone, this was something that really intrigued me because we hear preventive health quite a bit and mammograms specifically relating to preventing breast cancer are a big part of preventive medicine, MRIs, mammograms, other um, sort of checks we can do on our body. But what I love about the idea of proactive health, which is something you're championing, is it's kind of taking that a step further. It's right. putting our health in our hands even more. So how is it different than preventive medicine? Right. Well, it's very simple explanation. So every October we chant and go, yeah, 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 go to get your mammogram, part of your preventive health. And I always, it, it kind of never made sense to me, to be honest, how does a mammogram prevent breast cancer? It really doesn't, does it? Mm -hmm. Also, the mammogram is to see if there is breast cancer already. Maybe see it earlier before a woman can feel it. We do know on average, depending on the location of the cancer and how typical the cancer is, but it probably takes about five years between the onset of one cancer cell and the point where women can actually feel it in their breast. Mm -hmm. so we can catch that woman maybe year one, maybe year two, before it's not what we call palpable, a woman can feel it. Then we get that breast cancer at a very early stage and many wonderful treatments are then possible. Avoidance of bigger treatments like chemotherapy is typically possible. So that's the whole idea of preventive health. It's not necessarily to prevent breast cancer, maybe it's to prevent it becoming uh, a bigger issue, catch it at an earlier stage, and then avoid some harsh treatments like chemotherapy 
and maybe minimize the amount of surgery a woman might need instead of mastectomy, removing the whole breast, just removing part of the breast, whole lumpectomy, et cetera, et cetera. But in its core, a mammogram would never prevent breast cancer. So my idea is, it's not just mine, it's kind of idea of a lot of people who are on the cutting edge of it is, let's stop talking about preventive health as kind of the ultimate holy grail. How about we talk about proactive health? How can we minimize that one cancer cell even appearing to the best we can? And it goes back to lifestyle medicine. It goes back to the idea that, again, the major pillars of um, clean diet, exercise, sleep, alcohol avoidance, all of those things that we know that are intuitive, but we actually have studies behind them now and statistics really can minimize appearance of cancer. So um, when people tell me, okay, fine, so that's proactive health, so I need to start eating cleanly, so how about I just start eating salads all day and make sure that they're organic, organic and whatnot. And I actually printed out um, two things. One is an article that was printed in 2006 in the Journal of International Society of Sports Medicine. And we're talking about clean diet now. And um, they've done a really cool experiment. They followed 70 athletes for 10 years and scrupulously analyzed every piece of food or nutrient that went into an athlete's um, body over 10 years. And they found that all 70 athletes on a consistent basis lacked proper amount of nutrients from their clean, healthy diet, all 70 failed. And these are clean, fighting, athletic, competitive machines. That's probably 1% of the current population, at least in the US, right? So then it goes to what does it do to the 99% of us? What do we do to ourselves? There's one more thing I'm gonna, I loved your reaction when you heard this one. I can't wait to see your reaction when you hear this little uh, excerpt that I printed out. So. According to the second session of the 74th U.S. Congressional Record in 1936, so almost 100 years ago, quotes, laboratory tests prove that the fruits, vegetables, grains, eggs, and even the milk and meats of today, 1936, are not what they were a few generations ago, which doubtless explains how forefathers thrived on a selection of foods that would starve us today. It is bad news to learn from our leading authorities that 99% of the American people are deficient in critical minerals and that a marked deficiency in any one of the more important minerals will result in disease. Any tipping of the balance, any considerable lack of one or another element, regardless in how minute an amount it is required, will cause us to become sick and to suffer and will shorten our lives. So this is 1936, talking about poor quality of soil, fruits, grains, vegetables. Needless to say, it did not get better since then. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, you're saying this, and, and what's what's coming to mind is this movement that sparked lately of um, seasonal eating and, um, you know, not treating our soil, but like allowing our soil to recover so that the micronutrients go. But here's here's where I trip up. Like we can, we can know all this, right. And we do we know that the quality of our food is poor and that we have to be very aware of what goes into our bodies, but it feels like a sort of self-defeating process because most of us don't have the ability to change the land around us to make the right. soil and thus the plants and nutrients more rich. So what do we do with this information yeah. when it seems like the odds are stacked? Right. And even though they are stacked, but we just still don't want to throw the towel completely, right. go to Dunkin' Donuts and start eating donuts, right? Because, oh my gosh, that salad ain't just worth it. <laughs> it's not going to give me. So still continue more or less with um, things that we know are good for us, right? Um, mostly vegetables, kind of like that whole premise of eat less, mostly vegetables, <laughs> food, eat, eat food, mostly vegetable. Um, and some lean meats and whatnot. I'm not going to espouse to the benefits of one diet over the other, although if we do have to get into that rabbit hole, probably Mediterranean seems to be the winner. All-cause mortality, longevity, uh, brain health, and et cetera. But 
um, certain body hacks we can do. If we talked about in 1936, we don't have enough minerals and uh, in, in in our sorts uh, food supply, then these days, um, one of the tools I've discovered personally and was the impetus for me opening up um, the ID Lounge is uh, within 30 minutes, once a week, I can get more or less all of that deficits of nutrients that I'm missing from my real intake through an IV. Sounds like a modern body hack and an answer to my grandma never needed an IV and she lived to the age of 100. Uh, well, she did eat still better food. Now right. we're in such a fast-paced environment um, and, and what we eat and how we process it and whatnot that maybe little body tricks and hacks like doing intravenous infusion of vitamins that get absorbed into you right away at 100% rate versus 25, 50% if you take it by a pill, seems to be like a nice hack. And uh, and and we try to make it fairly affordable um, to the point that I equated to the pricing of your phone bill. You know, if you think that your phone is important to you and connects you to the world, what about um, your health and connecting you to the to the world um, through wellness and uh, for that reason you know that was one of the things that inspired me to 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 open up IV lounges it's one of those places where you can in a fast way effective way efficient way get your nutrients you need well it, it does say something to me that you step I don't want to say stepped away because like we say there's always a chance of anything happening yeah. Um, and I, I know you personally well enough to know that you have an appreciation for both the Western treatments that are more reactive as well as the other treatments that are more proactive. But it is interesting to me that someone who is renowned in her field would step away from practicing conventional medicine to get into this end of it, because it seems like you really do believe that this will make more of an impact than, like you said, catching it when it's too late. It does speak volumes to me, at least from the outside. I'm curious if you want to sort of expound on that, talking about um, the way that our medical system is set up and what it might be lacking in certain right. ways. Right. Well, first of all, I mean, we're still our best beneficiaries of probably the best medicine on earth in the United States. Uh, more or less, you know, everybody... Yeah, wants to be treated because for an individual would definitely have a fantastic um, at least possibility of healthcare, right? When there's access and whatnot. But for population health overall, we really don't do much. And for me, population health is again more goes toward the prevention of disease, mm. the idea of this proactive health of uh, how do I not even even if I get mammogram, how do I not get that stage one, stage zero breast cancer on it? And um, I think in there lies the reality that doctors really treat disease, but we as MDs, medical doctors, are very poor at going a step beyond that or maybe step before that step of what happens, how do we really minimize the chances of, of getting the disease? And it's not just as simple as getting a mammogram or colonoscopy. It really has to do with digging deep, reevaluating how you live, what you eat, how you move, what you think, et cetera, et cetera. Much more comprehensive approach. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking back to patterns of our parents and generations past. They went to the doctor once a year, maybe, or when and if there was a problem. I'm so grateful to be... Um, alive in a time where we have access to information that sort of spurs us to do the work. Because what I'm hearing you say is, yes, of course, the doctors are doing exactly what they're supposed to do, which is treat disease, which is in some cases, reverse problems and issues that have come up in the body. But we have to be, we have to take the initiative in the meantime. And it was ignorance in generations past. They didn't know what we know now. And now that we do, actually, I would argue that it sort of verges on like, oh my gosh, it's like too much to take in. But it's such a blessing because it spurs right. us to take action in the meantime, not right. just, you know, in the time leading up to an appointment. Um, I want to know, Dr. Ivanov, what specific tests and panels you think are valuable for a person to get to get a picture of their overall health. There's gut panels out there, hormone panels, blood labs. Can you be very specific as to what you think is the most beneficial to do to get the best picture of your overall health? Sure disease? Well, the bad news is I can't really give you one specific thing because everybody comes with different symptoms. So it okay. really give us all then. <laughs> every test that you think is sure. sure. I, I hear what you're asking. And again, it's, 
a doctor has really a bag of medical tools, whether it's tests or treatments and whatnot. And because we all have, um, yeah, there's this overall, like 40% of people have anxiety. A lot of people are overweight and whatnot, even though we all have a commonality of symptoms, but how they actually pertain to the particular person is very different. And so I hate talking in generalities. I'm really more of a very specific person and it depends on the particular situation, particular age, genetics, lifestyle, and symptom combination where we would take a patient on somebody it could be just generic, we're all lacking vitamin B12, we're all lacking uh, B vitamins, um, vitamin C, D and whatnot. So we can give those generalities. But if somebody really wants to take a deep dive into their health, we would have to figure out their specific symptoms, tailor their testing to the symptoms. We can't just blindly test for everything. And then based on that, figure out the proper way of going forward and treatment, if, if you if, just to speak. So um, good way to start is um, I, I do like two kind of tests that are I, I use the most. One is um, my, micronutrient testing. And what it does, it really looks at overall picture of micronutrients, those are vitamins, oxidant, um, antioxidants, and minerals in the, in the person's body. It's uh, SpectraCell is the one that I use over the past three months. So if, for example, I go and get a regular blood test, it'll typically uh, show me what's in my plasma, what's in my blood today. Would have taken a magnesium pill two days ago, too much, too little, and that will be reflected right away. Versus these more specific tests really look at what's inside the white blood cell that typically reflects what was inside your body for the past three months. So it kind of gives me a wider snapshot. So that's one test that I really like because it kind of breaks down where the obvious deficiencies are, where more hidden deficiencies are, and we can really tailor somebody to maybe increase their selenium or um increase their asparagine, you know, something so esoteric that you would just never even hear about it, not to mention know that you're deficient on it. Mm -hmm. So that's one uh, testing. It's called micronutrient testing. Again, looking at the uh, insides of your cells and seeing uh, overall content of minerals, vitamins, antioxidants in them. The second one, obviously, is, um, and it's a bit of controversial um, testing in the scientific community, and that is uh, food sensitivity testing. There's Ooh. a lot of them out there from online $50, $99 on Groupon to um, hundreds of dollars, maybe even $1,000, and people all think it's the same thing, um, and they're not really. Some are completely based on no science, and some are based on validated study in humans correlated with the onset of particular diet and elimination of particular triggers that were found by this test and actually patients getting um, more energy, getting more um, kind of life satisfaction and all scientifically validated on human beings. So there's a gamut of those tests. Um, I use the scientifically validated one in particular, and that looks at 170 um, not only foods, but actually chemicals like dyes in your toothpaste, for example. One of my patients um, had, a, that's the only thing that she had to eliminate because she had extremely high sensitivity to blue color. And when she eliminated her um, toothpaste alone, you know, her symptoms really have gotten better. And I have a myriad of other of those um, anecdotal examples, but that seems to also get you the biggest bang for your, for your money. I did a biome test. What do you know about that? That's one that you see advertised quite a bit online, yeah. Facebook feeds and stuff. Um, do you know anything about that? Um, I am aware of it. Um, you know, it seems to, the one thing I um, keep reading about Viome is I can take your own sample from today and then take the next sample tomorrow. And they seem not to be completely uh, in accordance with each other. Right. It's kind of this inter-test variability. Um, but, you know, seems to have to give you also good results. Okay. Well, that's good to know. So those two are micronutrient testing and food sensitivity tests. Obviously, we would be able to speak with our doctors about all this. Sure. Do you suggest people seek out integrative or holistic 
practitioners of medicine or are these things that um, traditional doctors are also starting to get on board with in your experience? I think there's a gamut of doctors out there. There's traditional ones who, who are, who've always been more of a integrate, always have had an integrative approach. Maybe they didn't label themselves as such. Um, and then there's more integrative um, physicians out there that I think just use it as a label because it's in vogue right now. Mm -hmm. um, so it really depends on just the individual physician. And again, um, do, do I espouse values of integrative medicine? Absolutely. Does mm -hmm. it do a better job than traditional medicine and more like more of a proactive health and preventing disease? 100%. Um, but I wouldn't just go to a doctor because their science says integrative medicine uh, practitioner. Um, mm -hmm. It's extremely variable out there. Um, I, I want to get into, I, I don't want to forget this, specific diet recommendations for someone who might be undergoing breast cancer treatment or someone who's trying to reverse course on a diagnosis they got, even if it's like an autoimmune, something inflammatory in the system. So don't let me forget that. But I do want to ask this before we move on, because we were talking a couple of minutes ago about IV therapy and its benefits. Um, there are going to be people out there who say, well, you know, I supplement a ton. Is there a difference between what we are absorbing from encapsulation of certain vitamins and minerals versus intravenous? 100%. 100% of what we absorb intravenously is by definition already in your vein. So the absorption part really is not even needed. And so from the vein, it can go into directly to the cell and kind of work wherever it needs to work. Mm. In terms of taking a supplement with a pill, take it by mouth, it has to go through the stomach. Um, first of all, the um, gastric juices destroy a lot and in, in, you know, incapacitate a lot of nutrients because they're just not supposed to work in the acidic environment. And then whatever goes and survives the stomach has to go through the gut. And with Americans, leaky guts, that's a very popular topic. These days, how much it gets absorbed through the gut becomes problematic. Obviously, the older the person is, the gut uses its ability to absorb not as efficient. So definitely, in the, the two numbers I usually give is via an IV, it's 100% absorption of nutrients. Via your diet, your mouth, it's at best 25%. Uh, absorption. I'm wasting so much money, Dr. <laughs> that's insane. Yeah, like, that's just okay. basic physiology, though. Okay, well, mark me down for an appointment. I actually did try. This is crazy because a while back before this, I was doing this talk show, we had connected at Ivy Lounge. I did a video with you guys and just to try it out because I'm always, like I say, about finding little hacks and proactive ways to sort of take charge of your health. And um, as someone who may have labeled herself a little bit of a critic beforehand, like kind of, mm, kind of questioned its benefits, I did feel the effects I did that day. And I forget what infusion I got. It might've been a B12 or like a vitamin B complex kind of thing. But what I loved about you and meeting with you, and this is like, guys, this is not sponsored. This is not paid for. So don't like go down that route. This is just me my experience having been to IV lounge. We sat down together and I was nursing my youngest at the time. So this was a couple of years ago. And you really ran through with me um, what my what my health issues were. I told you I have MTHFR mutation, which is some sort of thing that prevents me from properly like methylating some my folic acid, I think. So you you were really it was a really comprehensive experience. So um, I guess my question is, is, is there always going to be someone on hand at IV Lounge who can kind of take into account the, the comprehensive health picture beforehand and. Also, I, I'm, I'm supposing we'll all be getting sort of different infusions as a result of where our current health is. Well, we typically do have a consultation with a medical professional um, at the lounge. We go through patient's history, their symptoms, and then we do our very best to try to tailor the therapy to the individual patient. Mm -hmm. Having said that, you are absolutely correct. A lot of us, majority of us are deficient in say B vitamins. So I, and, and those also happen to be water soluble. So I do know that giving somebody a B vitamin infusion with other things obviously attached, I'm just talking about the Bs in, in particular, is going to be beneficial probably for the majority of that bell-shaped curve of 90% of people who are deficient in it. And if you happen to be a person who just is on par with your B complex vitamins or whatnot, then because they're water soluble and you do have healthy 
pre-screen patients prior to every um, infusion that you have healthy kidneys, then you will just excrete it in the urine if you ha happen to have a little extra too much that what your body doesn't need. Um, if a person wants to, however, beyond this general characteristics of their symptoms, really not guess but test, that's what we would prefer, that's when we get into the micronutrient testing and we can really tinker with the specifics of, okay, you're really uh, person, you know, Jane Doe is low on asparagine and then let's supplement it this way and not everything is actually better supplemented by an IV. For example, selenium, I recommend patients when they're low on it, eat two Brazil nuts a day and you're fine and you don't need any other supplementation IV, IM or otherwise. Oh, wow. Better absorbed that way. Huh. So, um, so anyhow, to, to finish the example is, yes, you, there will be a brief evaluation with you just to make sure that it is first and foremost safe for you to get an IV to begin with. We don't just... Mm -hmm start an IV on anybody who walks into the IV lounge. We first assure that there's safety to it. And then we get kind of the most, um, a combination of most basic nutrients that most people are missing majority of the time, right? We try yeah. to bell-shaped curve and if somebody wants to go really deep into their health and dive into that then we take we take the blood test takes about three four weeks to come back it's fairly thorough analysis and then we really then uh, tailor our therapy IV and even some supplements or foods PO to the patient is this something that someone currently undergoing um, a chemotherapy or radiation treatment in treatment for let's just use breast cancer as an example can also do in addition to their treatments um, it's, it's, it's down on a very, very much individual basis because mm -hmm. depending uh, as a, as a physician who, um, knows a lot about cancer and treated over probably 10,000 patients, I would say in my life, um, uh, the timing and the kind of infusions is extremely important. In some people, it could be contraindicated. Things like glutathione, for example, uh, if it's given at the time of radiation, could negate the effects of radiation. So things like that. So don't just go, um, uh, the idea is to really work with an oncologist mm -hmm. who provides chemotherapy over radiation, uh, um, doctor, radiation oncologist who provides radiation and the integrative approach to nutrients, IV therapy, et cetera. It, 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 because at certain times, depending on the dose and um, even vitamin C and the timing of the infusion to the treatment, uh, vitamin C can either be extremely beneficial or it can actually negate the results of the treatment. So a lot of coordination has to go into the care of the patient. So I don't just willy-nilly let anybody come in and say, I have cancer and let's start on therapy. Right. Uh, because we can actually hurt with IV therapy uh, when patient is under active cancer uh, treatment. Most of the time I do use, and I like using IV therapy as a recovery when all of the chemotherapy on radiation is done. Um, so that seems to be a much safer route. But when we try to integrate, it's a very individual discussion on the time and the dose, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, I wanna go back to this. Um, by the way, guys, if you have any questions, I know I received most by Instagram, but if you're watching live, please do leave your specific questions for Dr. Ivanov. We have some time left and we're getting into the portion of the show now where we get into um, reader questions and comments. So to kind of go back to circle back to what you were doing before you launched Ivy Lounge and in your practice, what's really cool is that you pioneered a treatment that is still in practice today. It's called intraoperative radiation therapy. From the research that I've done, what I understand is that it cut down drastically on the amount of time that a breast cancer patient had to spend physically in the treatment room. Can you just briefly tell us what that treatment is and how it differed from what was already available to the patient? Sure. So switching gears, breast cancer. Yeah. Breast cancer in general, um, in a woman um, that gets early mammograms, majority of breast cancers are detected still early. Uh, probably 80% are detected within stage zero, one or two, which is great news. Uh, when breast cancer is detected, a woman has typically one of two choices for surgery. And typically surgery is the first line of treatment when we're talking early stage. It's either mastectomy, which is removing the whole breast, or lumpectomy, which is removing just part of the breast where the cancer used to sit um, and the rim of 
you know, margin around it and leaving the breast intact. Well, typically mastectomy is a definitive treatment in early stage breast cancer. So nothing else typically needs to be done like radiation. But anytime a woman chooses to save her breast, she has to undergo radiation. And um, so even though surgery on breast cancer is only a one hour procedure, but then afterwards she has to do daily treatments um, of, again, only one minute, but it's every day, Monday through Friday, and it can last up to six weeks, 33 times. So imagine a woman who lives 150 miles away from the radiation facility, and she basically has a choice. I either save my breast, but then somebody or I have to drive daily Monday through Friday for up to six weeks with just one minute of treatment. Or I can skip that nonsense of six weeks because it just is not conducive to my lifestyle or to what I'm doing and upgrade to an unnecessary mastectomy. And we see this kind of a decision on a daily basis that women have faced. We're lucky here in big metropolitan centers where there's three radiation centers in one mile radius, I'm exaggerating, but kind of close, right. or somewhere where a vast majority of America lives and probably with difficult access to radiation facilities. So long story short, in order to skip those or avoid those six weeks of radiation, what actually was pioneered by Italians originally probably 20 years ago is at the time of lumpectomy, we remove the cancer and we deliver a temporary device into the breast that within 10 minutes delivers definitive treatment of radiation. And so a woman wakes up after surgery, her surgery is done, her radiation is accomplished, she goes home and she never has to visit the radiation facility, period. So there's been incredible studies done with different devices. And what, what I've pioneered was back in 2008, it was September 3rd, 2008, when we did our first procedure back in Chicago with this um, specific device. It's very easy to use. It's called Zoft. And it, we did exactly that. We removed the cancer, plugged in the special balloon device into the breast, radiated a woman for 10 minutes. Um, Everything else was removed at the end of the procedure from the breast. The breast was closed. The whole thing took an hour and a half from start to finish. And then she went home for lunch. And three days later, she was actually dancing at a wedding. And we're still in touch. And since that time, probably five, 7,000 cases have been done with this procedure alone. I would say even more than that. Um, Portugal, Spain, obviously, United States, um, Australia, New Zealand, Russia. So all over the world and um, seems to be like a great treatment. It's not for everyone. It's probably for 40% of women who develop breast cancer because you have to have specific age, specific characteristics of the cancer and whatnot, but it's highly effective and definitely out there. And um, we're still in the, in the um, unfortunately pioneering stages of it because it's not as widely accepted. Um, how are the results long-term? Have you seen that most patients remained in remission after getting Absolutely. Absolutely. So we don't just do stuff. That's a great question just because it's convenient, right? Because overall breast cancer, so the, the two things with breast cancer is called recurrence, chances of it coming back, and um, long-term survival, or chances to survive breast cancer. So going back to... Um, why we need radiation. So if we just do the lumpectomy and uh, alone, um, there's a 40% chance that the breast cancer will come back. That's why anytime lumpectomy is done, we have to uh, chase it by radiation and that drops the chances of breast cancer coming back under 2%. So 98% chance that the cancer will never come back. That's the reason for radiation. So we're not advocating skipping radiation. We're saying, what if we reduce this radiation from six weeks down to one day and let's compare those two. So six weeks or three weeks of traditional radiation drops the chances of breast cancer recurrence under 2%. Same with intraoperative radiation, drops the chances of breast cancer recurrence under 2%. But what we also start seeing is with intraoperative radiation, women survival chances of actually beat cancer and live through cancer is higher with intraoperative radiation than with full breast radiation. So not only is the recurrence the same between the two treatments, but it seems like especially non-breast cancer related survival, like heart disease, heart attacks, less in women who went through shorter radiation. Wow. For it is whole breast radiation blasts the entire body, right? The entire chest wall gets into the lung, gets into the heart and, and can damage it long-term. 
So we found that women who have just IORT, because that radiation is very localized, only treats the tumor and the rim of tissue around it, the tumor bed, and does not go into the heart, does not go into the lungs. Women don't have as many uh, heart-related deaths, coronary artery disease incidents. So not only is the recurrence about the same, but actually the survival not related to breast cancer is higher in women who had smaller radiation. Right. Okay. So just to reiterate, if you guys are just popping on, um, Dr. Ivanov said this is for about 40% of people diagnosed with breast cancer. So make sure if you're in that position, you ask your physician about it. It was called intraoperative radiation therapy. And obviously you can search that online. I'm going to get into some questions now um, that were specific to, I guess they're kind of all over the place, but um, I want to get into them. I love this one because um, everybody experiences this. Is stress truly a trigger for cancer and disease? If so, how? Well, it goes from very literal, yes, to a lot of kind of what we intuitively already think that yes. So first of all, there are a number of cancer cells that we found that actually have on them norepinephrine adrenaline receptor. Stress, high levels of adrenaline, that adrenaline goes to the cancer cell, stimulates it through the receptor, cancer cell growth. So we know that from just the very basic and very definitive connection, right? We're not even gonna go through the whole mind, body, soul connection. We're going through adrenaline, cancer cell, that much on a very basic level connection. But obviously going, touching back on the whole body, mind, soul, we do know that we're not just respiratory system. We're not just a collection of cells. We're kind of a coherent um, entity and everything is interrelated and our mind and our gut and the vagus nerve that goes from our cranium all the way and innervates our gut, it's all connected. Our emotions are connected. So obviously, you know, when I was a very, very young surgeon or physician, I would have these little old ladies who come in and say, doc, my husband just passed within a year. And, and, and then she comes to me with breast cancer, right? And then first time you hear it, it's like, oh, broken heart, no such thing. And second time you hear, or sadness or grief, no such thing as lowering your immune system. Third time, fourth time, but then you start reading, you start seeing patterns, you're like, what an eye fool you are as a young physician. And they truly do call it practice because it takes practice of medicine. Then you start realizing most of the time there actually is a correlation with some kind of a traumatic effect. And then a person having some kind of a disease, coronary artery, heart um, uh, cancer and whatnot. So when you start seeing these coincidences and then you start reading and realizing like nothing is coincidental, there is a reason, believe your patients. And um, just seeing it firsthand just makes you humble and realize there's just a lot of unknown that we haven't put in a test tube and quantitated it yet, but to deny its connection is silly. I, I just have to sidebar for a minute because as a practicing physician and particularly as a, a doctor who saw people um, potentially in life and death situations, I want to know if you're a spiritual person and if your practice in medicine uh, revealed any, um, you know, crazy stories about the afterlife or has impacted your spirituality on any level, because you were in the unique position of seeing people at their lowest of lows when they were confronting confronting death. And, and I want to know what that did to you on a spiritual level. Um, I think I was, um, I have been definitely just from my family, from birth, from my education, um, very much um, a spiritual person, but you're absolutely correct. Just um, facing this every day and seeing patients come through you and share the deepest, darkest things, uh, probably at the deepest, darkest times, you can help but change with them and learn from them and um, take a lot of that impact and internalize it and kind of grow in a different, uh, more mature way about kind of, you know, life and, and, and attitudes to it. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. More uh, reader questions. How, okay. We need to pay specific attention to this. A friend of mine who's dealing with triple negative breast cancer, she wants to know how far treatment has come in the last five years. And why don't we just add on to that too? 
Um, if there's any sort of exploratory therapies or treatments that you are finding promise with that might be able to complement her treatment right now, which is, uh, from what I understand, the traditional route of, of breast cancer. Right. So typically up until now, we kind of had four things to in our armamentarium to deal with breast cancer. One of them is surgery, one of them is chemotherapy, one of them is radiation therapy, and the fourth one would be a pill, typically a anti-hormonal anti therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously for women with triple, ne triple negative, by the way, people want to know what it is, is any breast cancer, when we diagnose, we really want to know three markers on it right away. Now there's many, many, many more, but the basic three always need to, that we need to know is estrogen status, progesterone status, and something called HER2 new. So if the uh, breast cancer cell does not have estrogen, progesterone, or HER2 new receptors, that's what we call triple negative breast cancer. Typically, traditionally, uh, um, younger women develop it, also traditionally more women who are genetically predispositioned to develop breast cancer have one of those breast cancer mutations that we know are responsible for up to 12% of all breast cancers, um, which means that the rest of them are still spontaneous uh, breast cancer. So only 12% of women have uh, really genetically predisposed breast cancer. So those typically tend to be triple negative cancers. So in triple negative cancers, uh, when the cancer is already not responsive to hormones one way or another, we really are down to surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy or a combination of such. What has really been impactful for a lot of cancers and breast cancer in particular over the past five years, in addition to the four we just listed, is immune therapy where we truly get deep down, figure out what particular markers a gene expresses, much more so than just the basics ones that we dealt with for the past, you know, 20, 30 years, estrogen, progesterone, and her 2 new, much more so, and figuring out if we can have an antibody against this particular antigen, what we call, that will suppress the, the, the woman's breast cancer. And that's truly personalized approach of the 21st century that is here today, and most, cancer centers now use this fifth modality immune therapy as a, a good, excellent approach to treating breast cancer in a very specialized way because we don't just treat all breast cancer, we don't just treat triple negative breast cancer, we treat this patients and particular receptors that her cancer expresses. So she should ask about immunotherapy in particular, and would that be complementary if she's currently undergoing treatment or would that be something to seek out after that treatment is done? Typically it's part of the treatment and it could even be the first part of it. It could be second, third, you know, um, and most of the oncologists, it's not something you even ask anymore. It's like, you don't really have to ask about chemo or radiation. It's part of if you, the best advice I'd say about treating breast cancer is go to a comprehensive cancer center where it's all under one roof and typically all the physicians talk to each other, um, figure out the best treatment plan for that patient. And that would be something that a physician typically would bring up um, themselves and say, you're eligible for it or not. And what, okay. so it's not something, it's not an esoteric thing that you have to seek out anymore. It's pretty much, I wouldn't quite call it standard of care yet, but it's getting there very, very fast. Great. Glutathione is, I don't even know what, a mineral supplement yeah. we've talked about before. It's getting a lot of press lately, especially on blogs and channels where people talk mm -hmm. about natural and preventive health. Um, tell us what it is, its importance, and <clears throat> if it is good for everyone to be yep. taken. Yep. So glutathione is something that we synthesize naturally. It's, it's one of main, um, the mother, they would actually say, of antioxidants, just like vitamin C, glutathione is an antioxidant. We have it present in every cell. It's part of kind of internal machinery and working of every cell. Of interest, glutathione levels, our own production of it, um, the highest production of it is actually in the liver, and it peaks at the age of seven. After seven, we start decreasing. Seven? Like this many? Yep, 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 like that many. <laughs> Okay. I thought maybe you said seven, 70. I, no, um, no. So and there, right now. And there's been a lot of um, studies that show that people who are typically older, who are sicker, who are more incapacitated, 
typically have lowest level of glutathione. So it's kind of almost a surrogate marker of wellness and health and overall well-being. Um, and we needed basically, I kind of compare it to that sticky tape uh, when, that you see sometimes that flies get trapped on. So imagine flies in your body as pollutants, free radicals, kind of byproducts of toxicity our body gets to deal with, right? And glutathione has this sulfur molecule in it, and so it makes it kind of literally sticky, like that tape, and all the flies or toxins get to latch onto it and be eliminated through the body. It's a very basic description of how it works, but it's one, um, you know, one of the nature's detoxifiers uh, that we have in our bodies. Should we be taking it via capsule? I know if, if people, my, my concern is people are hearing this and hearing it's important. Yeah. Oh my gosh, maybe I'm not in the vicinity of an IV yeah. lab, IV yeah. How is glutathione generally tolerated and absorbed as an oral supplement? As an or oral supplement, it's such a delicate molecule. Um, it's a very small delicate molecule that typically it does get destroyed in the gastric juices. There are, however, some what is called nano um, technology. So it's kind of enveloping this glutathione into a protective shell that can bypass the stomach juices, more or less protected, and then get into the gut and get absorbed. But again, we're talking about at best, whatever doesn't get destroyed and gets absorbed, maybe even lower than 25% absorption rate because of the molecule itself and how small and delicate it is. Um, obviously, to get it intravenously, um, it gives you 100% absorption right on the spot and doesn't get degraded by the uh, gastric juices. So that's the most effective way of, of getting it. Um, but going back to glutathione, antioxidant, um, there are certain reports that show maybe during active cancer treatments, when we do rely on creation of free radicals, we shouldn't be giving it to patients. So it's important to avoid it during active radiation, maybe even during active chemotherapy. The jury is still out on that. So uh, since I want to tie it back to kind of cancer and cancer uh, prevention or cancer treatment, important to know how to use the tool at the right time. There is a reason why we need free radicals in the body, but there is also, it's always a balance. There right. is such thing as too much of a good thing, even with something as good as glutathione. Right, okay. Um, well, you brought this up in passing in an earlier question, but I have heard of a person being treated for, I believe it was colorectal or a digestive type cancer that had a lot of luck with vitamin C as a supplement, um, perhaps in some cases a replacement treatment between regular conventional treatments. Um, so the question is specific to that type of cancer, but in general, is this a good guy or yeah. bad? So there's two ways of um, kind of looking at vitamin C. Uh, one is um, what we call high dose. And even that is com very controversial. What do you define as high? Some people define high, especially during COVID periods, anything over four grams. Some people defy, um, define high dose as 50 grams. And some people say, no, not until 75 or 100 grams is it important. Why is the dosage such a hang up? Because at different doses, it functions in different ways. Up to four grams, it may be a pro-oxidant, so it oxidizes things above four grams or maybe 50 or 75 or 100 is definitely a very strong antioxidant. So the idea of treating vitamin C, oh, to treating cancer with vitamin C is not a noble idea. It goes back to Linus Pauling and the mid of uh, 20th century, and he actually won Nobel Prize for it. At very, very high doses, there have been reports of, uh, and I'm talking 100 grams and maybe even above, of cancer toxicity and an eliminating cancer. Um, as a sole treatment. I don't know how I feel personally yet. I don't think it's quite the most rational, responsible way of advocating it outside of clinical trials, uh, in cancer that way alone. However, there's enormous amount of evidence that potentiation of typical therapy, which would be chemotherapy, for example, along with vitamin C works beautifully because all those kind of um, free radicals that are produced during chemotherapy sometime after, say, two, three days after the infusion can really be 
uh, mitigated or decreased down by the infusion of vitamin C. And that actually kills the cancer cells much more preferably and also rebuilds the patient. So typically patients who do chemotherapy at the right time, at the right dose concurrently with vitamin C can actually, instead of say prescribe 12 doses of chemotherapy, the typical patient can finish only six or eight. Patients who supplement with vitamin C finish all of this chemotherapy because they get to rebuild and not suffer the side effects of chemotherapy as much when are supplemented with vitamin C. So as a supplemental or potentiating treatment during your conventional treatment, um, I absolutely love this idea. Again, it needs to be done at the right time and at the right doses. As a sole treatment, I wouldn't go uh, vitamin C for cancer. I wouldn't go and venture it yet this far bravely uh, outside of clinical trials. Okay, great. Um, the last question, why are some cancer patients in treatment told to stay away from antioxidants? Well, that's exactly what we address because the whole idea of radiation or chemo is to produce these free radicals to damage the cancer cell. The problem is these free radicals also damage everything else, your hair, your gut, your skin, your every tissue in your cell. So that's the fine balance of trying to damage the cancer cell yet protect protect the rest of, of the body. And so that's the balance of doing it with vitamin C. Why is vitamin C at high doses treating cancer? Because it literally makes holes in the cancer cells and damages them directly. So that's the mechanism of it working as a sole treatment in high doses for cancer. Again, something that should be probably done within a study, but uh, so that that's the long-winded answer to importance of antioxidants and free radicals. And it's really about overall balance. What do you think of collagen as a supplement? And does that play any role in preventing any disease? I think the jury is still really out on it. We, I, I know it's all the hype and it's on every box, collagen for your skin and whatnot. We really don't know how much gets absorbed. What are the formulations? At, at current, without really having seen any um, long-term studies on it. I think it's more, of, my gut feeling is going to end up being more of a marketing ploy than, mm -hmm. uh, than a valid treatment taken PO. Are there any basic supplements that you recommend to anyone in regards to perhaps preventing disease yeah. or cancer? Yeah, so yeah. definitely. Um, again, it's hitting that bell-shaped curve. We, most of us are deficient right now in B vitamins. We're all deficient in vitamin D. We all are. We're all not enough outdoors time. Um, we're always putting on that SPF. So vitamin D is really, really, really crucial. Um, to get supplemented. And I would say magnesium, uh, those would be my top three. If you had to take something, those would be my top three go to vitamin D, magnesium, and uh, B complex vitamins. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I know that you stressed this several times during this interview. Everybody's health picture overall is going to look a little bit different. Uh, what is the one question for someone who's just really interested in getting on the right track today, who's willing to adopt the lifestyle changes, including, like you said, more vegetables, better exercise? What other piece of advice would you give them that is the best route to preventing cancer or any other disease? Adopt a Mediterranean diet, I would say. Oh, it's to it. Yeah, yeah. If you wanted to stick to one diet, it's not restrictive. It's uh, just a healthy way of, I don't even like using a diet. It's more of a lifestyle. And um, I, I would say that would give you the best bang for your money. What about specific types of exercise? Um, we've heard, or at least I've seen articles that say specific types of training can activate yeah. parts of the healing mechanisms of the body. Is yeah. there type of exercise you like better as far as preventing or healing disease? It's the exercise that you like to do, which means as long as you get your heart rate up, you know, you're already going to activate a lot of those cancer fighting genes and the particular type, as long as it's aerobic and you get your heart rate going and pumping 150 minutes a day, a week, I'm sorry, at the minimum, you're already achieving that threshold of turning on the right genes. Okay. One final question relating directly to breast cancer in honor of uh, uh, breast cancer, I'm sorry, breast cancer awareness month. And just knowing that people are going to be talking about this in the next few weeks, um, there are different suggested protocols for people as to when to start mammograms, um, how and if MRIs. Is there a general rule of thumb when it comes to what you recommend for detecting? 
Yeah, so general rule of thumb, meaning young, healthy, no family history, uh, probably 40 would be a good first time to get your baseline. And majority of a baseline mammogram. Now, if that mammogram comes back with extremely dense breast tissue or there is uh, strong family history, then adjunct to the mammogram would be an ultrasound. Um, if, however, a woman is in really high risk category, so first thing to assess is really figure out what is your risk, average risk. Are you high risk? Are you low risk? Are you intermediate risk? Let me ask you this really quick. Is one family member having been diagnosed considered high risk? Depends on the age. Depends on the age of the patient. 42. <laughs> 42. Very, I, if so, if, a, if you have a family member with 42-year-old breast cancer in the family, absolutely that would qualify as high risk, just right there alone. Okay. To the risk goes not only your family history, your personal history, age, and of, uh, age of onset of menstruation, any history of breast biopsies. There's a bunch of other things that go into your personal risk, your family risk, to give you overall idea of the risk. And then once we stratify a woman, you know, a woman with low risk, uh, normal BMI, no family history, then maybe she can even start mammograms at 45 or 50. Wow. Uh, societies are kind of split right now. But um, average rule of thumb, if you really put a gun to my head and say, give me one number, I would say 40. 40 once yearly. Four, 40 once yearly. Um, but again, very nuanced. In addition to mammograms, do you need ultrasound? When do you get an MRI, if ever, et cetera, et cetera? I've also heard people say they're concerned that starting too early, i.e. 40, would increase the you know, the radiation exposure. And yeah. do it. Yeah. Is there a concern on your part about that? That concern, as much as I'm into healthy lifestyle and whatnot, but the mammogram idea on an annual basis and its risk of exposure is negated by one fact, and I tell it to all my patients. The amount of radiation you get from one set of mammograms once a year is equivalent to the radiation you would get in the background by uh, uh, by um, boarding a plane in Orlando and landing in L.A. So your background radiation just from the air is about the same. So if you can take that trip and never think about the radiation exposure you take there, feel safe to go to your mammogram uh, place. And typically we're all gone home, getting them um, everything shielded around you and getting the mammograms themselves with low and lower amounts of radiation exposure to the woman. So from that perspective, I'm fairly um, comfortable and safe saying that's a very safe procedure. Absolutely. Okay. So to wrap things up, I want to go back to IV therapy for anyone who's interested in pursuing this as a complimentary treatment or sort of getting into it. Can you tell us um, how much we should be doing, how to take some first steps into this as an additional therapy? Sure. I think the only, the best way to, to figure it out is to try it one time. At least uh, most of the patients who do that, who tried, always come back. So you know that it worked for them. You know, I don't like advertising, I like action. So um, that's my uh, biggest advice is try it and, and see for yourself. You know, you will know better than anybody else as to how it, it, it felt. Um, it's an easy treatment. There's always going to be a quick intake assessment by the medical team. To first and foremost, safety is our number one principle and concern that it's safe to have the therapy. Uh, we typically would um, go through the symptoms and customize the treatment to you. First time takes under an hour uh, for the whole infusion. Typically, there's a few shots as well to supplement, in, intramuscular shots to supplement the what gets infused in, 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 intravenously. And um, most patients um, typically require once a week for four weeks to kind of get up to that loading dose of vitamins in the system. And then patients do it at least once a month, but most of our patients come back two, three times a month. Um, after that first month and the subsequent visits are maybe 30 minutes or so. Okay. Well, Dr. Ivanov, I'm so grateful for you having given us so much time today. Can you tell us where we can find out more about you, where you'll be headed in the future or anything else that you're doing? Yeah. So um, we have a fairly good website, robust website, www.theivylounge.com. Um, we have wonderful in repository of information there actually on just nutrition and vitamins and 
um, IV therapy and infrared saunas and all of those things that we've discussed today. Um, we do have very um, detailed, thoughtful, I don't even like calling it a blog, but it is a repository of information there. And obviously on it is our address. We're in Dr. Phillips area. We're also expanding into Winter Park locations in Lake Nona. So we'll be seen more and more often around the I-4 corridor. Ivy Lounge is the name of the Ivy Lounge Next Generation Spa is the true full name of um, my company. And um, that's where you can find us. Well, thank you again so much for giving us so much time today, Dr. Ivanov. I'm certain I will be in touch with you in the future and I will be soon at one of those locations. <laughs> Sony, thank you very much. You do a wonderful job bring this kind of education in a very informal, understandable format. So kudos to you and uh, just congratulations on a job. Great. Well done. Well, that means so much, Dr. Ivanov. Thank you. We'll be talking to you soon. Thank you, Sony. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. Do you see why I love her? Um, gosh, Dr. Ivanov is such just a wealth of information and I'm really, really grateful that you guys took time. If you submitted questions, I hope we got to everything that um, that you sent in, like you heard her say, if you're in the Central Florida area, it's called the IV Lounge. I have been there before. This is not sponsored. This is not paid for in any way. I personally really enjoyed my experience and was really grateful to have sort of one more avenue to be proactive and preventive about my health. You know me, I'm always looking for something to do, some kind of test to take to make sure I'm uh, feeling optimal. So check them out. If you are watching this show on Facebook, share. That is the best, best way to get this information out to people who might um, find it useful or informative. And if you're listening on the podcast, please rate five stars on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review that actually goes a really long way in getting this info out. Thank you guys so much for listening to and watching this episode of We Gotta Talk. We will be back with ne next week with more goodness. And uh, that's it. Thanks so much for watching. Bye.